Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be tuning in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode and lesson number nine of our Bridge to Excellence study of the book of Hebrews. Welcome to you who are joining in. I pray this is a blessing to you, and thank you for joining me. Today, I want to continue reading through Hebrews, and let's get back into this study. And I want to read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, and go through chapter 8, verse 2, and we will try to cover that today. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priesthood, who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Praise be to God. In this study of Hebrews, we have seen several things so far, and we see that the theme of this 
is all about Jesus being better, better than, the best, the best of all, the most superior, the more excellent one. And we've talked recently about him, him being the better high priest in the better high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which he is now priest forever. We looked in the last episode at how the priesthood was transferred, just like Hebrews 7 just told us in verse 12, that the priesthood had been changed by the time of the author's writings here in the book of Hebrews. And we covered that and when that happened and how that happened in the last episode. But the author here also brings out that when the priesthood changed, there was also a necessary change for the law to be changed. Because under the Torah, under the law of Moses, the only tribe that could serve as priests were from the tribe of Levi, and more specifically, direct descendants of Aaron from his line. So there had to be a new law, an instituting of the more superior law that would correlate with the fact that now the new priesthood forever after, after the order of Melchizedek, is installed. And so now we see all through Hebrews, we see these contrasts because that's his point. His point is to prove that Jesus is better. Jesus is the more superior one. Jesus is the more excellent one. So we see again another contrast here. He's contrasting the old law regarding the priesthood and its effectiveness with the new law and the new priesthood under Jesus after the order of Melchizedek and its new effectiveness. So he says in these contrasts, let's look at the points he brings out. The priestly tribe is different. Under the old law in the Torah, the priestly tribe were the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. Versus now, Jesus Christ, who is from the tribe of Judah. He was not established through the law of a fleshly commandment, but through the power of an endless life. I want to go back, as we looked at in the last episode as well, and reread Psalm chapter 110, which is where the author of Hebrews is quoting from. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we know that this is God the Father who has sworn this promise to Jesus 
and he has now become priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Hebrews is telling us here that because of this, because Jesus now is arisen and has been ordained as priest forever through the power of an endless life, through this oath, there is an annulling of the old covenant. In other words, it's been canceled, it's been put away, but not without cause. There's a basis for that. Unless we misunderstand, Paul tells us in other places, the law is good. It had a purpose. Its purpose was to point us to Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Its purpose was to draw us to him. Its purpose was to be a tutor and a schoolmaster, Paul says, to show us we could not keep it. Its ultimate goal and what it was pointing to was the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. But the law was weak and it had to be annulled, the author of Hebrews tells us here, because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. In other words, it had no strength, it was not able, it was feeble, and without the energy and strength necessary to accomplish the salvation of souls, to accomplish the atonement, the, to accomplish the redemption that it spoke of. It couldn't do it. It was not possible. It was too weak. It was unprofitable. It was, it was useless and not advantageous to bring about what it spoke of. In other words, it made nothing perfect. It could not accomplish or complete not even one of the atonement or the redemption or the forgiveness of sins that was spoken of there. It could not bring them to pass. The blood of bulls and goats never cleansed anyone. It was not sufficient. It was not able to accomplish, execute, complete, or finish the work. It's interesting when you look up this word or the words for made nothing perfect. It's talking about being unable to advance anyone, not even one, to a state of final, complete character, or to bring them to the end or to the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the salvation of people, restoration, forgiveness of our sins, cleansing, and true atonement. And the law could not do that. That's why it had to be annulled. So he says, on the other hand, there was a bringing in or a replacing of that weak law that could not do the work with what could do the work. This was a substitute. It was the one that came in in place of the weak one. We now have this bringing in and replacing with this better hope. That word for hope is interesting because it means the expectation of good based on God's word, based on the promises of God, based on his character and who he is. And it has opened and welcomed us, given us the ability to approach 
God, because of this better hope, he says here, we can now draw near to God. Then he begins to talk about the oath. This new high priest, Jesus the Messiah, has been installed with an oath. He, in other words, was sworn in, so to speak. It's serious and fully reliable, based solely on the word and character of God. In another place, the author of Hebrews will tell us that God could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself. The same thing happened here. We just read in Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. There's no going back. He's never going to revoke that. God's oath is sworn over Jesus and to Jesus. Jesus now has become the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek and is now the surety of a better covenant. He is the one who secures it. He is the guarantee, the guarantee of it. In other words, we can bank on it. We can take it to the bank, we used to say. There's no question and no worries. He is the guarantee of this new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament, and you can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 31. We will be discussing that in probably the next episode. The author of Hebrews here contrasts also the fact that there had to be many priests in succession under the tribe of Levi because they were they had no endless life. They, they were human beings, and so they would live out their life and then die, and then there had to be another one installed that was also a son of Aaron in succession. So he's contrasting that here with the fact that Jesus continues forever. He is alive. He will never see death again. He is alive forevermore. Revelation chapter 1 speaks, he's speaking, and he says in that passage, I am he who lives, was dead, and am alive forevermore, lives now forevermore. He will never die. He is alive. He is risen. Praise God. And because of that, this priesthood is unchangeable. There's not going to be successors to it. It's not going to be transferred. It's not going to be superseded either. There's no voting him out, so to speak. He is the surety and guarantee of this unchangeable priesthood. And because of these things, I want to read verse 25 again. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Bible tells us that all that come to God come through Jesus Christ. He is the Savior that God has sent the salvation. And because of what he has done, because of God giving him this eternal and unchangeable priesthood, 
He is mighty to save. Jesus still saves today. Jesus will still save you today if you will call upon him in simple faith, if you will call out to him and truly believe in him, he will save you. If you will believe in his finished work, that he died on the cross and his blood is enough to pay for your sin debt, then he will save you even right now. And not only that, but it says here that he can save to the uttermost completely and entirely with nothing lacking. It also speaks about throughout all time. There's no limit. Jesus still saves today, just like he did in Paul's day, just like he did in the apostles' day, just like he did 2,000 years ago, and just like he has done all the 2,000 years in between. And he still saves today just like that, throughout all time, to the uttermost, completely and entirely, Jesus saves people and gives them a brand new life, writes their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, guarantees and ensures a home in heaven for them. Praise be to God. So we have to remember the old was annulled because it could not make anyone perfect. But Jesus does. He perfects completely to the full end and through all time, all who come to him. It'll never wear out. It'll never run out. It'll never grow tired. He will never grow tired of saving people. That's his heart's desire. Second Peter 3. Verse 9 tells us that he desires that no one perish, but that all will come to Jesus, come to repentance. And so I implore you, if you need to believe in Jesus, if you've never been born again, and you're not absolutely certain that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that he has saved you, I implore you now to make that choice. I implore you now to call out to him. I implore you now to let faith arise in your heart and call out to him, confessing your sins and asking his forgiveness, calling upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved just like he promised. Hallelujah. And I love the other part of verse 25 and what it tells us is that right now and from now on, Jesus is involved in 24-7, we would say, full-time priestly ministry in heaven, and that ministry is intercession. Hebrews tells us here that he ever lives to intercede for us. Hallelujah. That word for intercede is talking about pleading the cause of someone. It's talking about entreating God for favor on our behalf, for help on our behalf, for grace on our behalf, for whatever we need. He is ever pleading our cause and entreating God on our behalf, interceding for us. The Bible also speaks of this in Romans chapter 8, 
And it also says that the Holy Spirit as well makes intercession for the saints. Beloved, the saints are simply those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some mystical term. It's not some title that some man gave to somebody else. It means those who have turned their lives over to Jesus Christ, those who have called upon the name of the Lord and been saved and are now his children. That's what it's talking about. And he is ever interceding for his family, ever interceding for his family. I want to look at one example that proves this to us, even while he was here on earth. He was already operating in this priestly ministry of intercession. We don't know what all he pleads necessarily in terms of words that he uses now, but we do have some guide that shows us the heart of our Savior and the heart of our Lord praying to God on our behalf. And it's found in John chapter 17. It's really the entire chapter, but I'm only going to read a small portion of this. I want to begin in verse 1. John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He goes on down and then he starts praying for us. He specifies that he's praying for his disciples, for his family, beginning in verse 9. And he prays for them. And we're given some of the details about some of what he prays over us. I think I want to begin reading again in verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also, I also have sent them into the world. Then go down to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Here Jesus is including every one of us 2,000 years later, because he says, I'm not just praying for these alone, those that were with him at that time, the 11 faithful disciples. But he says, I'm also praying for all those in the future who will come to believe in Jesus through their word. In other words, through what they have written, through what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write and has given us through the Bible, in the Gospels and in the Epistles and in the book of Revelation. The things that they wrote about the Lord as eyewitnesses to his glory and majesty, eyewitnesses 
to his teaching and his ministry. And so Jesus includes us in this example of his high priestly prayer before he left this place. Beloved friend, he is still doing that now. He's done it now for 2,000 years. And according to Hebrews, he ever lives to make intercession for us. It is his full-time ministry now. And in that, I just simply want to make this one point. Some people are called to special prayer and intercession times. We might refer to them in the olden days, we would call them prayer warriors. And there are people that are called specifically to that. Now, every single person that believes in Jesus Christ should be developing a prayer life. And I encourage you to pray every day, two or three times every day, morning, noon, and night, morning and night, etc. And talk to the Lord because prayer is where you are talking to the Lord and you are hearing from Him. It's communication. It's a wonderful thing to be praying and developing that prayer life and that communion with Jesus every single day. But there are those that are called specifically to even increased prayer and intercession. There are those who could spend hours in prayer and intercession, praying for the world, praying for children, grandchildren, praying for the schools, praying for the, the different nations, praying praying over whatever the Lord may lead them to pray over and interceding in depth and in, in sincere devoted times of prayer. Don't belittle that. If that is you, do not feel that that's unimportant. Don't belittle that. And I hope that this will encourage you because Jesus himself now, 24-7, every day, is doing that for us. He has elevated full-time ministry of prayer and intercession in a sense that those that he has shared that gift with, it's a solid, good gift. It's a gift worthy of pursuing. Give yourself to that and know that Jesus himself is also committed to that same ministry. So don't feel that it's insignificant or unimportant. This high priest, Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, is fitting for us because he became like us to save us. He was tempted as we are, but according to Hebrews chapter 4, it was without sin. He never sinned. He loves and cares for us and has given us open access to the throne of grace through his blood that was shed for us. And he grants us favor, help, and mercy in our time of need. We read this already in our study of Hebrews, but I'd like to read it again. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. Praise God. He is holy. He is set apart and undefiled by sin. There's no one else like him. He is holy, set apart as completely separate and untainted. In Isaiah chapter 44, I want to quickly read verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. God is holy. Jesus, our wonderful high priest, is holy, set apart. No other like him. He is undefiled by sin, pure and right. The author says he is also harmless. In other words, that means he's free from guile or fraud. He is free from guilt, totally innocent, totally blameless, totally free from all evil or sin. He is undefiled, sincere and genuine, unspoiled and unstained. He is separate from sinners. When you look this up, this word separate is talking about a space between or a room between. In other words, Jesus is in a class by himself, so to speak. He became human like us, but was not born from the same sinful nature. He is separate from that sinful nature. He was born of the eternal nature. He's higher than the heavens. Hallelujah. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes this. Let's start in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. Jesus is higher than the heavens because God has exalted him. Hallelujah. He is now exalted to the right hand of God, just like Hebrews also tells us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
That's his seat. He is there now, beloved friend, on our behalf. Praise God. He is higher than the heavens and has been exalted to sit at the right hand of God. Hallelujah. Then the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 contrasts the fact that there is now no daily continual sacrifice and sacrificial service that's going on, that Jesus didn't have to, to sacrifice for himself. He had no sin. And on behalf of the people's sin, he's already done that. He did it one time, once for all, not every day like they used to have to do in the temple. So we're made aware in this chapter also of the power of the oath. He contrasts here the appointing of earthly priests that were human beings, people of weakness. They were prone to death. They were prone to weakness. But even though they were appointed, some of them even perhaps without an oath, it says here, yet God made the oath, his own Logos word, which came after the law. Because He's quoting here and reminding us of the oath that God swore in Psalm 110, verse 4, which was written by David about 400 to 500 years after the law had been written. And in this oath, God designates and installs appointing his son, Jesus perfect and complete always as priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of the book of Hebrews wraps it up here in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and we will close with this. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. He is our high priest, our great high priest, the minister, the one who is now doing the service of the holy things of God in the true tabernacle, the one above, the one in God's very presence, the heavenly one where God dwells. I want to read Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He is in the heavenly tabernacle. He is ministering in the heavenly tabernacle. And this is where God is. This is where his presence is. Jesus is seated right there at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And Jesus is ministering 24-7, interceding to the Father on your behalf and on mine. The main point, we have such a great high priest. Praise God. 
I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for more of these lessons as we go through the book of Hebrews in this Bridge to Excellence series. God bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.